the book and its tone and uh there's some beautiful things i can talk specifically about what cormac mccarthy does but the tone of the book is perhaps a little more ambiguous than the movie where the movie in my opinion makes some hard decisions as to how to portray these particular moments um emotionally speaking and i also think the conclusion of the story is perhaps a bit more ambiguous than the movie makes it out to be. Welcome, friends, to episode 276 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And I'm writer Luke Elliott. And this week, we discuss John Hillcoat's 2009 film, The Road. And joining us in the Doomsday Bunker is Mike Whittier. He is a multifaceted SAG-AFTRA actor based in Los Angeles. He is well-versed in comedic and dramatic acting on camera and on stage. Welcome to the show, Mike. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. It's exciting to have an actor on our podcast. That is a uh, perspective we haven't had yet. Oh, no so, way. Cool. Yeah, it'll, it'll be very interesting. Yeah, yeah, and for this movie, no less, with, with fantastic performances. Mm-hmm. So this has kind of been a long time coming, just for the listeners. We're actually related. We are, yeah. <laughs> we are cousins. <laughs> and we are. Uh, long ago, we talked about, when the, right around the podcast first starting, you mentioned, like, if you guys are ever going to do The Road, let me know. What was the reason for that? What was it about this film and this project that that drew you to it? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I've loved this book for uh, a long time. I think it was round about my junior year of high school, which I will not say how long ago that was. Um, <laughs> but after the release of the book, um, I actually read uh, All the Pretty Horses first. That was my cool. first Cormac McCarthy book. And it was like a summer reading thing. I just you know picked it off of a list and read it. And I was like, wow, this is awesome. Um, and The Road was like just the, the next thing that I looked up to read by Cormac McCarthy. Um, so I, I read it, um, it as emotionally draining as it is, it actually strikes me as, uh, one of Cormac McCarthy's easier reads. So, so I can see why it's, it's popular. Um, Mm. but it is just a, a super compelling story. Um, you know, the, the exploration of why do we hope for anything ever? Why do we persevere ever? Um, and that in the context of familial ties is obviously uh, super attractive and, and resonated with me at least. Um, so yeah, from like high school on, I, I loved that book. And when I first saw the movie, when it first came out, I was really, really pumped about that. Uh, and I, I loved the movie. I would still say I really like the movie, but my opinion has changed a bit with this. Uh, I, I just rewatched it a couple days ago yeah. um, and I hadn't seen it since it initially came out. Uh, so, um, yeah, yeah. My opinion has shifted a tiny bit with this second reread of the book, second rewatch of the movie. Um, but they're still both two beautiful pieces of art. Um, so, yeah, I'm really grateful that you had me on, James. This is going to be a lot of fun to talk about. <laughs> yeah, of course. I also want to acknowledge maybe something I've never mentioned to you, but like you 
were very influential in me continuing to pursue the arts in ways. Um, when when I was younger, yeah, man. when I was younger, I would look up to you and see you acting and see you like really into <laughs> films and talking about monologues and things like that. And and that definitely was I saw someone who was doing it and I continued to pursue it because of that. So that's Dude. something I felt like we definitely needed to mention here. So full circle <laughs> moment having you on here and I'm a filmmaker. So, I you know, acknowledgments are due. It, talking about family that that really warms my heart man that, that's awesome <laughs> that that's just wow man <laughs> so thank you and, and uh, yeah. I'm, I'm really happy to hear that um i hope to see you out in la sometime soon that'd be badass yeah. Yeah. oh uh, are we not allowed to curse on this oh, oh no, no definitely curse yeah okay cool we do well, it a lot <laughs> yeah. fucking awesome then okay yeah. yeah james i wanted to ask you uh what your experience is with this movie um because i know that you read the book for the first time but you'd seen the movie before right is this just your second time yeah this is my second time and to be honest the first time shouldn't even count because i barely remembered the film and i realized that reading reading the book um there were like a couple of scenes that i remembered but other than that uh, I just remembered Vigo and them on the road, basically. Yeah. So this was almost a first viewing for me. And, you know, I I think the, the things that stand out to me now are the performances, I think, especially for the younger performance of, a ch you know, a child actor and the set design and, and like the way that this film, although it clearly digitally altered to look this way, has has a cool look yeah. to it. And, and I think it's like very overbearing, which is something that you need in a story like this. Absolutely. I, I um have also seen this before but I had some sort of strange Mandela effect going on where I thought the movie ended in a completely different way than it does. Did you think um, it had the children of men ending? Cause I, like I said last week, I kind of have the two. Yeah, no, no. Okay. It, I just, I, it's like, a, I don't know where it came from, but I thought it ended in a completely different way. And I thought I had a memory of that, but then the movie didn't do that. And so I was very confused. I don't want to reveal it until we get into spoilers. Um, but we'll revisit that. Um, so this was like a very strange viewing because I kept ex waiting for this ending to come that never came. Mm -hmm. uh, very strange. I was like, is there an alternate ending to this that I saw? I, I don't know. <laughs> very weird. In getting into our general thoughts here, would you recommend this movie to somebody, Mikey? Is this is this I know that you said that your 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 feelings have changed on it. Maybe get into that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, it, like I said, I, I still think it's uh, a beautiful movie. Um, I think it is a less truthful adaptation than perhaps I initially thought it was on my first watch and first read through the, the book and watch of the movie, but it is still a great movie. You're right. The art design is on point. The performances slaughter. Um, I think Charlize Theron is like really, really awesome in this movie yeah. especially um and, and you know the character uh if you read the book uh, appears fairly little in the book and, and similarly in the movie but just has such an impact with the scenes that she has um and of course Vigo Mortensen's a boss but he gets the the whole <laughs> movie to be that boss um so yeah just yeah. uh really killer performances across the board some cool like one-off I, I don't want to call them cameos because they're they're important and they are scenes but like they're these big actors who come in i was surprised to see some very familiar faces yeah yeah, yeah definitely the the thief and and guy pierce at the end like yeah, yeah. was yeah. that robert duvall robert duvall and yes yeah. <laughs> transformative almost rip. unrecognizable I know. And kind of a level of physical acting that I don't think I've seen Robert Duvall do anywhere else. The kind of twitchiness in his hands, yeah. the the character that he's playing being you know, 
a bit shell shocked, I guess, um, was super cool and, and not yeah. the tough guy that Robert Duvall normally plays. Yeah, he was going for it. So let me ask you, Mike, when you say truthful, are, are you talking about like um, it being faithful to the book? And, and if so, I want to know like your, your feelings on adaptations and how important that is to you. Yeah, um, it's not necessarily important to be truthful. Uh, I, I happen to be in the middle of writing an adaptation myself that is going to be rather untruthful. That's rad. Um, so <laughs> I I think to the, the screenwriter adapting um, any piece of literature, it's kind of their interpretation of that piece of literature. Um, I I simply think that the book and its tone, and uh, there's some beautiful things I can talk specifically about what Cormac McCarthy does, but the tone of the book is perhaps a little more ambiguous than the movie, where the movie, in my opinion, makes some hard decisions as mm -hmm. to how to portray these particular moments, um, emotionally speaking. And I also think the conclusion of the story is perhaps a bit more ambiguous than the movie makes it out to be. Um, so that is the sense in which I think the movie is maybe not as truthful as I initially thought it was. I remember that conversation I had with you, James. Um, and at that time, I said, oh, it's one of the best uh, adaptations I could possibly imagine. A and my first impression of the movie was that they did really capture the man, the, the protagonist's internal monologue beautifully throughout the movie. Um, and that they did. But I do feel like you lose some of the ambiguity that Cormac McCarthy lays in there. And by choosing to go with VO too, voiceover throughout, you're, mm. you're you know, making decisions for the character there. Like this... I think obviously in the book we're getting the internal thoughts of of the man, but here I think it's given to us even more simplified. And there's something there that like I think in a different version of this movie you don't have voiceover and the audience is left to interpret a lot of what's going yeah. on with the character. And maybe that gives you more of that ambiguity that you were looking for. I Yeah. I, I liked the decision to go with voiceover. I think it's smart to want to include Cormac McCarthy's words. They're so good, and you mm -hmm. want to get them in there. And so much of it is the interiority of the man. And it doesn't make sense for him to say it all. This is all just like his thoughts, right? But they did make a lot of decisions. Uh, the filmmaker made a lot of decisions about what to include and what not to include. And it seemed to me that the choices that were made of what to include pushed the narrative in that certain direction. And even though a lot of it was right out of the text not including all the other stuff, it, it eliminated a lot of the doubt that the man had and a lot of the like going back and forth and he would say one thing so like strongly and then like a few pages later he would say the counter and in the movie would choose one of those sides and ignore the other. And so it seemed like he like had a lot more that he at least thought he had figured out about the world and about existence. And that made him a little bit less interesting to me in the film versus reading him where I'm always really interested to see what this guy has to say next. Absolutely. And maybe that leads into something I was feeling, which was the, in the book, it felt bleaker. The ending was kind of a surprise in the, in the book for me more. And I knew where the story was going, obviously, but I think there's a more hopeful note throughout this film that has you thinking, and maybe it has to do with like him talking about 
maybe religious allegory that's going on and the way that it just feels like it's fated to go well near the end whereas the book was oppressive in a way that i was like it's all it's all over they're dead both the the boy's not going to go on nothing's gonna nothing's gonna help yeah um do you uh can i can i talk about the beginning of both the book and the movie sure so an example of, you know, a, a specific creative choice made by the filmmaker that kind of went contrary to the, the book is just the opening image in and of itself. Um, you know, Cormac McCarthy in the book is um, describing the, the bleakness of the landscape, this black lake that they're sleeping next to. He says that there is a, a creature on the other side of the lake and never really specifies what the creature is. Um, so it's just super duper creepy. Very golem like creature. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what I imagined, honestly. Big it's like you know, a cave being. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and the movie opens up with Vigo Mortensen and Charlize Theron in the bright sun. They're they're petting horses. There's a lot of grass and greenery. And then they cut to He's waking up next to that lake. Um, but that's the kind of thing I'm talking about is like, that's a, a pretty clear choice and an interpretation from the filmmaker that establishes that hope from the get go. Um, even in this, you know, awful present that the man is living in, we first get to see that beautiful past that he's kind of longing for and I guess has hope to recreate. Yeah. Visually, I thought that what they did with the flashbacks was perfect, right? It's so warm, so saturated, mm -hmm. so beautiful looking, the soft light. And then to, to juxtapose that with what we're getting for most of the movie, which is just the grayest gray you can imagine, the desaturation <laughs> yeah. level of of that uh, part of the film is it's pretty like I said, I'm going to keep saying overbearing because it is. And yeah. the level of dust and dirt and grime, they, they really nailed that. And um, yeah the way that uh they're walking down the street and their you know their shoes are falling apart and just all of it i felt like and some of this comes down to costuming production design that kind of thing but also vigo as a performer he's method acting in this role so he lost tons of weight he was like yeah. sleeping in in the filth and dirt and sleeping outside and stuff um wow. is that something that you kind of like have ever considered is that something you roll your eyes at i know that there's like a lot of different takes on how people feel with method acting I, I can imagine method acting like that being very helpful in, in certain scenarios. And there are definitely, you know, everything that I've done has been like little tiny indie stuff that nobody would have ever seen. Um, but there are some times where I've done like a more complicated piece where like I can't, you know, crack jokes in between takes. I need to I need to sit in it. I need to, to get back to the emotion that I have when they say action that I'm supposed to have and I need to hold on to that so i definitely understand the kind of staying in character throughout the filmmaking process um in in that sense uh i do think there's a point at which it hinders the production like sure. jared yeah. leto sending people dead pigs or used condoms and it's just like what the fuck man this, this <laughs> yeah. isn't helping anybody um so yeah like, like i heard a recent movie oppenheimer killian murphy insisted on being called robert oppenheimer or roger oppenheimer yeah, i think it's yeah. robert I'm, I'm seeing it tomorrow so yeah <laughs> but, i'm seeing it tonight um, <laughs> ooh, 
nice, nice. Yeah, I'm pumped. Did see Barbie first, but um, I also saw Barbie this weekend. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but um, he insisted on on being called Robert Oppenheimer throughout the filming process and was in costume always when he was on set and kind of just maintained that gravitas and his emotional state. And I think that's fine, especially if you want to deliver a really consistent performance. Yeah, yeah. You might need that. So to me as an outsider looking at it and, you know, so take that for what it's worth. Mm -hmm. um, It seems like it's like you got to know yourself and you got to know like what's going to help you and what's not going to. And that's not going to be the same for everybody. Like some people that'll be great and that'll really help them. But other people are like, no, I don't need that. That's that's ridiculous. So definitely. Yeah. 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 The uh, the difficulty is I kind of come from like a a Sanford Meisner school of acting. um, And the the really important thing is that you have the emotions that the character has at the top of the scene. And then from there, it's all call and response. It's it's all reaction with your scene partner. Um, But some scenes are really terrible and awful and like to to have that emotion at the top of the scene is a difficult place to get to so you can't be you know munching on a donut at the crafty table and then suddenly be uh skylar from breaking bad and waltz is running away with her child something like that like you, you can't do that you have to sit in it to be there at the top of the scene so while we're talking about just like the the overall production of this movie something that i think is interesting know is when watching the behind the scenes for this the production of this film Cormac McCarthy stopped by and was pretty pretty heavily involved in terms of like being on set and he actually brought his son who the film you know the idea for the story developed from the conversations he had with him and the Mm. filmmakers found it useful to to be able to see them together and some of the ways they were interacting and just the full circle nature of that having Cormac McCarthy's blessing and him coming to set um, not only did I think that that would probably help with the process, but also I heard the filmmakers talk about like getting financing and people taking them seriously and not having meddling from producers and things like that. Mm-hmm. People wanting to to influence the the direction of the film. So Cormac McCarthy had a strong strong hand in in uh, developing this. But with with No Country for Old Men, the the Coens are so precise and they're so specific about their the method that they make films. I'm wondering if Cormac McCarthy had any say on that or you know how he how he was involved in that. Uh, maybe we talked about it in our episode. I've forgotten. <laughs> yeah, it's been a long time. I I think I would I would lean on the side of the Coens probably needing a little less yeah. uh, push from from McCarthy, but these filmmakers found it very useful. And it, talking about the filmmaker, John Hillcote is an Australian Canadian film director, screenwriter, and music video director. He has often worked with Nick Cave, the band Depeche Mode, and actor Guy Pearce. The Road, his adaptation of the novel by Cormac McCarthy, premiered at the 2009 Toronto Film Festival. His 2012 film Lawless competed for the Palme d'Or at the 2012 Cannes Film Festival. Hillcoat's film Triple Nine was released in 2016, and in 2017 he directed Crocodile, an episode of the anthology series Black Mirror. Oh, okay, cool. Nice. I'm trying to remember which episode that was. Yeah, it was a strange one. I, I, I needed to refresh my memory as well. Um, the episode follows Mia 15 years after she helped her friend Rob cover up a hit and run death and, she, and as she commits several murders oh, in order to cover up her yes. past crimes. Yeah. yeah, in Scotland. Yeah, mm-hmm. I remember that episode now. Yep. Another person we should note with the creation of this is the writer. Joe Scott Penhall is an English-Australian playwright and screenwriter best known for his award-winning stage play Blue Orange the award-winning West End musical Sunny Afternoon, and creating the Netflix original series Mindhunter. 
for which oh. Fincher would be the you know showrunner and director for most episodes. No way. Whoa. I, I loved Mindhunter. Yeah. Mindhunter was great. <laughs> I'm so mad. I felt like I had to mention that. I'm yeah. so mad that we're not getting another season of it. So am I. Supposedly I very expensive to produce, but come on, what a great show. And let Fincher have whatever he wants to make that show. Yeah, come on. Yeah. Oh, gosh, I wish we had more. That's one of those that even if you're operating at a loss, like Netflix should just do it anyway because it yeah. looks good to have a show like that on your Well, we, we know that the streaming services are doing a lot of questionable things yeah. in and out of the, you sure. know, the news currently. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm starting <laughs> to think they're not in it for the art. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, maybe, maybe no. Yeah. Uh, on that note, solidarity. Huh. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we absolutely stand with the Writers Guild and SAG after. Hell yeah. So this film had a budget of $20 million and filming began in Pittsburgh's metropolitan area in late February of 2008, continued for eight weeks, moving on to northwestern Pennsylvania, Louisiana, and Oregon, which is where Luke is. That's so funny. I was getting an Oregon vibe from some of the scenes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm amazed to hear that that's actually where it was. Yeah. I wonder if it's I the felt, scenes I think it was, too. <laughs> some of the forest stuff, I felt like, looked kind of like the Pacific Northwest. But Yeah. Uh, Hillcoat said of using Pittsburgh as a practical location, quote, it's a beautiful place in fall with the colors changing, but in winter it can be very bleak. There are city blocks that are abandoned. The woods can be brutal. Filmmakers shot scenes in parts of New Orleans that had been ravaged by Hurricane Katrina and on Mount St. Helens in Washington. Whoa. Oh, wow. St. Helens. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. That's got a lot of the tree fall and stuff up there. So yeah. That, yeah. The abandoned Pennsylvania Turnpike, a stretch of abandoned roadway between Hustontown and Breezewood, Pennsylvania, was used for much of the production. And that's like some of the overpasses that we see. Um, mm. Just they use that for the roadway as well. Any word about Oregon? Was it the coast? It must have been. I don't know. I'm not seeing anything else. There's right a now. there's a famous beach around here that has some like shipwrecks on it, and I thought that the shipwreck that they showed looked kind of familiar at yeah. one point. So I was like, maybe it's that beach. Anyway, uh -huh. could be. So Hillcoat, the director, sought to make the film faithful to the spirit of the book, creating quote a world in severe trauma, although the circumstances of the apocalyptic event are never explained. Hillcoat said, that's what makes it more realistic. Then it immediately becomes about survival and how you get through each day as opposed to what actually happened. Filmmakers took advantage of days with bad weather to portray the post-apocalyptic environment. Uh, and Mark Forker, the director of special effects for the film, sought to make the landscape convincing, handling sky replacement and digitally removing greenery from scenes. Yeah, I think the effect uh, is a good one. It, it definitely has that overbearing grayness to it. Certain scenes had a beauty to them that I appreciated. I could have, I, I don't know, it's being kind of nitpicky, but I kind of wanted a little more of that. Um, it might have been budgetary as far as what they could afford to show. But uh, I'm a sucker for that, like, austere beauty of a post-apocalyptic landscape and um, finding the, the beauty in a, in a scene that's still mostly black and white. Like, we've seen directors do that really effectively. Um, and, and it... At times it did that well in this movie, but other times it got a little muddled. There were times that I was trying to figure out how they accomplish certain shots. Like there's the one that's an entire lake filled with just driftwood and yeah, deadfall. I bet that's near St. Helens, honestly. <laughs> that's <Maybe>. my guess. <laughs> that was pretty impressive. And there were many yeah. times, I mean, these wide shots of, of the environment and the landscapes with these really small, you know, you have the actors very small on screen just to show yeah. you know, how small they are in this world. I was like, damn, how, how are there? There's that's again, goes to production design and the way that they were able to set up all of these scenes and how meticulous they were with it. I, I was pretty impressed with with how some of it looked. And then um, one thing that I have to talk about, too, is whenever they would there's a few 
there's like three major ways that we see scenes in this, right? There's interior shots in the, in the apocalypse, there's exterior shots in the apocalypse, and then we see the flashbacks. And whenever we were interior in a bunker or in a house or whatever, I noticed, especially with the flame, you, the use of like a, a lighter, the way that it's lit and just thinking of fire and how it kind of is reminiscent, especially when these in the bunkers of like a like in a, being in a cave and having a torch and the way that like the contrasting light uh, that reminds me of how like this. I think it's trying to talk, make a commentary on us returning to primal instincts and, and like pr primal man and, and what it was like. Yeah before we had any of the technology or anything like that so just visually i thought that that interior stuff looked significantly different than the exterior stuff um and it made for really creepy stuff too right like you can't see a ton of what's oh, going yeah. on and the um the the i guess dungeon scene for for lack of a uh, a better term that was so coolly lit and yeah. that i will say looked exactly like i envisioned it reading the book totally. just that the slow reveal of corners as he's going through with the little fire that he has and i am um, i'm pretty ignorant to filmmaking processes like you know the specifics of we need to put this light here and that light there but i have to imagine that that's really difficult and required a lot of precision too in terms of like we need the light to cast this way we need the camera at this specific angle when they're like running up the stairs and people are clamoring after them like that had to be difficult to construct and they did it really perfectly yeah uh, i love the way that the the oppressive grayness really made moments of color shine and and a couple times there was this blanket they have that's like a, a quilted looking almost rainbow color. And I was noticing its position in each, each scene seemed meaningful, right? Like who had the color, who was wrapped in color, where was it positioned? Um, and, and uh, you know, the fire talking about that, there's a scene early on with like all these explosions and flames and yeah. how that really stood out against all the darkness. I guess I could have done a little more with that. Like I wanted a little more contrast, um, but you know, I'm just nitpicking. So that's all good. Yeah. <laughs> I did. Um, you just made me remember how much I loved the the couch in Vigo Mortensen's yeah. house. And he flips over that cushion and it's like, he's back to his childhood again. It's like he's sitting on the same couch because the bottom is so not ashen and so much, you know, brighter. Um, that was cool. I, I don't even remember that being in the book. Do, do you remember if it was? Or? Not that visual, I don't think. That seems like a something that a filmmaker puts in there. Yeah, <laughs> Knowing that yeah. it's a visual medium, right? I, I also, speaking of that same scene, love the shot where we were getting his reflection on the TV of him yeah. sitting in the couch. Oh my Some, God, that's such yes. a drip. It's, there's like a yeah. dark drip that goes right down the center of his face. How many times was he sitting there watching TV on the couch and, and how it feels so alien now in this, this apocalyptic world? Yep, yep. So moving into the plot here, I'm going to read three sections. The first one starts, a man and his young son struggle to survive after an unspecified catastrophe results in an extinction event causing the death of all plant life and virtually all animal life. The man and boy travel on a road to the coast in hope that they can find safe haven scavenging for supplies in their journey and avoiding roaming cannibalistic gangs armed with guns. Years earlier, the man's wife gives birth to their son shortly after the catastrophe, and she gradually loses hope. When the man shoots an intruder using one of the three bullets they have saved for their family as a last resort, she accuses him of wasting the bullet deliberately to prevent her suicide. 
Removing her coat and hat in the freezing cold, she walks into the woods, never to be seen again. In the present, after shooting a member of a gang of cannibals who stumbles upon them, the man is left with only one bullet. Exploring a mansion, he and the boy discover people locked in the basement, imprisoned as food for their captors. When the cannibals return, the man and his son hide. With discovery imminent, the man prepares to shoot his son, but they flee when the cannibals are distracted by the escaping captives. So we already started talking about it, but now that we're in, so we're going to start getting more into spoilers. Um, I guess we're kind of in a free-for-all for spoilers at this point, so if you haven't watched the film yet, be aware. Um, so I thought that there there was this through line of divinity throughout this film that exists in the book, but in the book it's always in question. And there's a little bit of questioning here, but it felt like the thumb was on the scale on the side of, like, God is watching, the boy is holy, this is all faded in some way. Maybe this is like a new, you know, a new uh, second coming type story um, to the point where it, to me, it got a little bit into a space where it's less interesting. Um, but I know that that will vary person to person. Um, I like a little bit more of that. Like, is that even really happening or is that all just like a figment of the man's imagination um, and the book and the universe doesn't care, right? Like there's so many passages about how the universe doesn't give a shit about any of this. And yet in the movie, I didn't get that feeling. It felt like uh, if only men could see it, they would see that this is actually, you know, all of God's plan. Um, did, did you two get that feel from the movie too? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, to kind of expand upon why I was saying it, the film isn't quite the faithful adaptation I once thought it was. I think it's faithful in terms of plot, but it is the most hopeful possible interpretation yeah. of the book. Um, whereas I think the book is quite a bit more like you were saying, maybe this is a, in large part a figment of the man's imagination. Maybe the boy isn't found. Maybe the boy, you know, um, doesn't even survive the illness that befalls him about three quarters of the way through the book. Um, maybe it's all just kind of him hoping and hoping this godliness and this reason for hope into existence. Um, there are counterpoints to that, but yeah. <laughs> I think that the, the book does a, a really good job at, at not taking a firm side. Um, which kind of mirrors a little bit of human existence and the relationship that this awful apocalyptic world has to the real world. Um, you don't really know what to hope for, or why to hope or, or anything. And, and yet we all, you know, plow on every day. So I, I feel like that is kind of what Cormac McCarthy was going for in the book. And in the movie, they definitively said, yes, hope. There's yeah. something to look forward to. Yeah. Part of it, too, with the man seeing specifically saying the son is this is much later, but he says that this boy is God, basically. Yeah. And you think of like religion, or at least I do think of religion as like people looking for meaning in life, right? Like something to live for. And in correlating the boy with God, I think he was also saying like he's whether you take it literally that it's something God and spiritual or it's like that's his reason for living, period. That's mm. his hope. That's his, you know, the reason he'll continue on. I think that that's the thing that he's latched onto as some people latch onto religion. Sure. Um, and, and the effect of the book is sort of underlines what we read about Cormac McCarthy and his relationship to religion and how he says, like, yeah, it depends on the day you ask me whether or not mm -hmm. I believe in it, you know. And to me, that's someone who has a lot of doubt, but 
at times probably seriously entertains it or or is falling back on like his upbringing um to me this film felt like it was made by a believer Hmm. that makes sense i don't have that confirmed but that's just the sense i get from it whereas i read the book by mccarthy and it feels like it's written by somebody with a lot of doubt i can see it yeah being the uh, kind of uh, Hollywood cynic that I am now, <laughs> part of me thought that like this is the more marketable way to make this film. <laughs> That's true. I, I hope that that wasn't the decision process, but I fear that it might have been. Um, I can't confirm or deny it. That. Did, I did pick up a little bit of like a identity issue going on with this movie of like, is it an art house, you know, film that is that is trying to be different and strange? Or is it trying to appeal to like post-apocalyptic fans in a more broad way, get them to come out to the theater? Because I remember like the trailer for this movie did not do a good job of conveying what it was actually about. Um, yeah. I think a lot of people went to see it expecting something a little more action-heavy, with a little more you know gunplay and Viggo oh, Mortensen yeah. being a badass. And like, no, this is not about a a badass, right? Like, it's not that kind of movie. The Weinstein Company had. Uh a hand in developing this. And oh, wow. I, I was reading an article, a very old article that was talking about um, Weinstein, who is a piece of shit, obviously. <laughs> yeah, super garbage. Famously. Uh, <laughs> the person who was writing the article was visiting with Weinstein when he was developing the trailer, looking at the trailer, deciding on trailer stuff. And he, he chose to, to lean into like a survival, uh, survival action sort of thing whereas the, you know that's kind of not what the the film is about um so yeah. yeah you might be picking up on something there in terms of it being more marketable in ways uh i think that the i thought that the identity crisis of this film a little bit was they were trying and, and i don't think that having the specific scene in the book that technically isn't a movie spoiler because it's not in the movie there's a scene in the book that luke and i both said stuck with us and it's oh, yeah. horrific. It's the most horrific thing that can happen in, in the book. And it's that there's a a baby who's who's possibly going to be cannibalized or it, I think been. they scare them off. OK, yeah. It, so they, I think been. it's it like been. roasting. Yeah. It's on it? a spit. Yeah, roasting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that was omitted. And I understand part of me understands like getting not having that. And honestly, I didn't miss it in this movie. I don't think the movie would be better if it had this scene. Yeah. But I do think that that was a decision that they made because they were like, is this too far in a and I was left thinking like, is there this this story already is doing everything you can possibly do that's too far um so to to kind of pull punches in different areas felt like an interesting take or or approach to this and 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 i'm not even saying the baby thing is specifically the the breaking point on that but it just felt like yeah maybe leaning into the hopeful side of the story versus the more bleak and um the one that would leave people with uh, an existential crisis or you know contemplating their mortality more i don't know so that scene in particular ties into another observation i have about this movie and that the man repeatedly allows the boy to look at death he Mm -hmm. looks at the bodies hanging in that early building he looks at the corpse and under the blanket as he pulls it off of him he says nothing you haven't seen before and that was a direct contradiction to the book to me because repeatedly we see the man trying his best to not let the boy see this stuff because he says, you know, be careful what you put in your head because once it's in there, it, it, you forget what you want to re- remember and remember what you want to forget. Mm-hmm. And um, this movie went, went away from that. And then it's interesting to me that that scene was the like manifestation of that of like, be careful what you wish for, like, because now that's a scene I'm never going to forget. I've read it in that book. And it's horrific, right? It's like the the most horrific scene in the entire book. 
and it pushes it to 11 for that reason of like this is more horrifying than you can even imagine and it's interesting that the movie chooses that one scene to omit um when everywhere else it's been t- it's been t- it's been forcing the boy to look at death and us as the audience instead it it decides not to show us that it like takes mercy on us i guess i don't know it it just feels like it's kind of at a contradiction with what i thought the the themes were of the of the story well yeah i i agree wholeheartedly i um I, I there was another what i think was a betrayal when the man is reading the story to the boy and they're talking about things like chameleons and animals and i i thought the book the man kind of shielded the boy from anything having to do with how abundant or lush the past was. Um, am I right about that? Maybe we, he know he definitely tells him stories. He, t- he the the line about how he told stories of like courage and the the world from before. Mm-hmm. I think is the same. Um, so it seems like he has shown him some of that. But there is also like lines where he says, like, don't think about that. Focus on your present. Don't let it because it's a distraction. Right. Yeah. Is the line he says when he's like, you think of me as a, an alien or you think my world is alien? Or was that from the book or was that in the, just in the That's movie? Right. I mean, it's kind of from the book. I don't know if it's line for line, but there was definitely that a similar exchange. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I think that's and we talked about this last week, but that's such an important thing to know, too, is thinking of a child who has no context for what like we're talking about, like a lush green world and all these animals around um, what that does to you psychologically. And I was reading that um, there's the moment where the sun is sort of like spiraling, taking crayons and doing spirals mm-hmm. on the paper. And supposedly it's reminiscent of a famous David Chim Seymour photograph from 1948. Um, where a psychologically disturbed child uh, Holocaust survivor drew similar circles uh, with messy lines to represent home. And I thought that like just thinking of like what that does to a child, not like living in a world like this and being taught about humanity and, and morality and being a good person when, as I said last week, like it's almost a disadvantage to be that way in this world um, when you could be leaning into some of the the rougher sides of humanity and the things that people are capable of, brutal things people are capable of might allow you to live longer survive longer longer so you know the messaging of the story ultimately comes down to like if you're going to survive do it with the the morality of trying to continue humanity in some way or if it or is that a fruitless effort like is that even worth doing yeah well, de- definitely the book asks that question is it even worth doing i think the movie would say yes yeah. <laughs> i think yeah, clearly the movie definitely yes. does yeah <laughs> um oh so the seller right with the with the cannibals mm-hmm. yeah. yeah so yeah you already touched on that a little bit mike but just what what a harrowing sequence um we see i agree that looked like just kind of how i imagined it um yeah i even like the moments where vigo was walking past the signs and you know the man is walking past the signs he's not seeing the shoes he's not seeing yeah. the like the you know the hooks and the boy is instead seeing it and reacting to it and how that builds up that anticipation so it just it was really cleverly set up um and then i thought the payoff was good i was a little bit surprised at vigo for locking him in there after he escapes but it ended up working out for him because uh they then escape like i guess a moment later and cause a distraction so that the you know he and the boy can can run out of there but I was like, damn, that was pretty cold to see all those yeah. people down there and then just shut them back in and like move the table back on top of the cellar door. 
Yeah, well, that, if anything, is more faithful to the book, if you ask me. There are a handful of times, and we'll talk about later in the plot of the book, where the man has to choose himself and his son over somebody else. Yeah. Um, or maybe even opts to choose himself and his son over someone else's well-being. So We should talk about Shirley's Theron and, and a lot of those uh, flashbacks that we get here. Um, mm-hmm. I, I agree. I think she was incredible in a limited amount of time. We did get a little more of that relationship um we got a few more scenes of sort of the fall and uh i liked how there was like uh there was still color in the room that one time when she's sitting at the piano but the the, the glass is just completely gray and ashen mm-hmm. and you can tell that it's just outside the glass um and it, it tells me that there was a period where they were just kind of going on and trying to pretend like the world was gonna get better on its own um, yeah. and she was the first to really see it for what it was i think it seems like um the man went into that survival mode sooner and she was a little bit more like uh thinking long term about it and going there's no point to any of this now i think the message of the movie undercuts her pretty bad and it makes her seem short-sighted in a way that the book doesn't because like we don't know now i will i will grant you there's some hope at the end of the book and we talk about that in our last episode but the hope is still highly interpretive yeah. and and here it seems pretty obvious and and skipping ahead just a bit because it lines up with this with this point i'm making we see a beetle in the movie very mm. briefly there's a beetle and and it flies away they look up at it and then i think the man immediately gets shot with an arrow um <laughs> or shot at with an arrow so we don't really get a chance to like think about what that means but that's such a huge change seeing any yeah. life like that like wildlife at all that immediately says to me that there's a chance of the world recovering and we never get that hope in in a in a concrete way in the book yeah i mean there's a dog at the end too in the film yeah which was yeah. kind of hinted at in the book possibly i mean and you could buy it, that there's... people might be able to keep a dog alive but like a beetle is a wild animal that just sure. has existed on its own so it's right. a little different for me that's right. true yeah and has to eat either other bugs or other plant matter or whatever. Right. Um, they do have in the book a, a couple weird instances like that. Like they find the the morel mushrooms. Um, yeah, you're right. And the uh, the apples too was pretty surprising. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Book. But it it is still few and far between. Um, and there is no. Still that's a all fair point. Other awfulness in the book <laughs> because neither of those are bo- uh, neither of those in the film. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So maybe the beetle just takes the place of those. It occur- I think it's because it occurs so close to the end. It yeah. felt like it had a lot more import to me. Um, but yeah, that is that is a fair point. Cody Smith McPhee is the the person who plays the boy. And okay. um, in casting him, they, they obviously auditioned a lot of young boys. And apparently his father, McPhee's father, um, was involved in the audition and he they they reenacted the scene where they you know they he puts the gun up in his mouth and things like that and they like did this whole intense scene with the father and like that was something that kind of sold them on it i guess just the emotion of the scene and actually seeing a father do this to the son uh, and the son's reaction to it and everything and then um eventually i i guess his his father played one of the cannibals in the back of one of the trucks so he kind of <laughs> got a roll out of it as well kinda, wow yeah. <laughs> Gosh, i can't oh, imagine man. uh you know i just feel like it'd be really difficult to 
act with your child with a gun and telling them to put it in your mouth, even if it's, you know, it's all for pretend, obviously it's all, it's all part of the film, but man, that's got to yeah. psychologically in some way do, do something to a kid. Yeah. Yeah. I am always in awe of good child actors, um, yeah. but I always question their parents. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's tough not it's, to. It's it's weird. It's uh, yeah. It's an ethically it was... fraught thing, right? <laughs> yeah, very much so. And the motivation for doing it often is like a little shady. I don't know. It can be tough. Yeah, and especially yeah. like big productions where you're going to become famous. Like being famous as a child is like historically not always had the best psychological effects on people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, another note, uh, Vigo Mortensen was dead against the, doing the voiceover. Um, and there were a few people who were for, a couple of people who were against, but ultimately, like, I think honestly, some of the producers and executive producers wanted it to, to be in there as well, because it just kind of like creates that through line for the plot. It makes it a just a talkier film than it would be. It would be a very quiet very movie. Very quiet. And yeah. which I would be into it, but we're it would be our, very Were audiences ready for it in 2009? I think they probably were, but I think maybe today more so. It would push it, it into that art house feel yeah. a little more, yeah, right? Yeah, <laughs> I think it's a smaller audience that would have been ready for that in 2009. I, I'm willing to say that that's definitely a marketability call. Yeah. I almost, I wonder as a director, if you could just tell the actors there's not going to be voiceover. Because I, I like the idea of them trying their best to convey and not rely on voiceover to convey what's going on in a scene. Uh, well, there's you know? a good chance that they didn't. They, they did voiceover in post. Like there's a really I'm almost I, and, I, and I and I hope they didn't know it was coming. Maybe that's why he was so against it. Maybe he felt yeah. like he conveyed it all there. But yeah, um, I mean, Vigo was great. So I'm not. Yeah, that wasn't a criticism of Vigo. I just think in, ge in general, mm. if you're going to do voiceover, like keep it a secret. <laughs> yeah. Right. So Cormac saw an early screening of the film, like they put together a rough edit and he he, he watched it alongside the um, the director and one of the and the writer. And they were there's a there's this whole write up actually by the 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 person who wrote the screenplay. Um, and he goes in and talks about sort of like how nervous they were and you can look at, I, I advise everybody check it out because it's pretty interesting, but how nervous they were to show Cormac and, and the projector failed at first. So they had to like try oh, to gosh. fix the projector. So they're starting off on a rough, <laughs> a rough note. Um, but ultimately they, they let him screen the film. And as soon as the film started, Cormac McCarthy's scratching notes on a notepad, just like furiously scratching notes. <laughs> it's that opening image, yeah. man. It's that opening image. <laughs> uh, film ends and they turn and they're like looking expectantly like what did you think what did you think and he's like i need to use the restroom of course so he like gets up goes <laughs> to the bathroom they're like it felt like he was in the bathroom forever he comes back and he says i liked it a lot i thought it was great and he actually was for the voiceover he he liked the voiceover in the film hey, it's and getting probably, his words in the movie i was gonna say probably because it's getting his words in there <laughs> um uh, so yeah, interesting to note, like sort sort of like again, he had some influence, and there was a scene that had been cut with some specific lines, and the thing that Cormac was fine with everything except one thing. He said, "You have to put this back in," and they had shot it and just decided to cut it. But it was the it was four lines, and the four lines were, "What would you do if I died?" And the father says, "I'd want to die too." And then the boy says, so you could be with me? And the father says, so I could be with you. And Cormac yeah. was like, you have to put that in. That has to be in because that's the messaging of the film. He's like, he kind of felt like that was that was a culmination of a lot of what was going on in, in the book. And he's like, that that needs to be in there. So they put it, added it back in and they felt like it was a good note and, and we're happy that he was willing to say that. I think that also conveys sort of a shorthand that the man and the boy have developed, right? It shows their intimacy and the fact that they often will sort of mirror each other's lines. 
and just repeat yeah. them back to each other with like oh, a different definitely. different meaning you know like mm-hmm. i love that kind of stuff very smart writing very it's a very sure hand too like to to trust that the meaning will be conveyed even when two characters are saying the same line to each other but it means something different from each person i really yeah. like that Definitely. It also conveys like the ideology that the man has kind of instilled in the sun, too, um, that they think that there is a place to be after death and that they'll yeah. be together there. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that that's, um, you know, a great moment for both the book and the movie. So I have to I have to say this now. I um I was watching on Prime like Amazon Prime something where where it had these commercials that would come in. Yeah. So, oh I watched my the God. same way. The commercials had terrible timing. <laughs> I, I bailed out and I, I paid to rent it on Apple TV. <laughs> yeah. Because the first commercial that came up, it's like the opening, you know, you have the the sunny Charlize Theron and then it gets really bleak. And, yeah. you know, Viggo Mortensen says, uh, if God ever spoke, then then this is the word of God, that the boy yeah. is the word of God or whatever it is. And then it immediately cuts to like some supplement commercial. <laughs> yeah. It's bright green. Green fields. They literally say the words "We believe in kale," and I'm like, "Oh right, fuck this. This is gonna kill the tone of the movie." That was a great call. I I, I paid the four bucks to rent it. (laughs) It was so stark, and it really just like bright, happy capitalism would come popping onto the screen to interrupt what was going on, and it was always so poorly timed, and it 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 seemed to be like in reaction to the bleakness of whatever I had just seen. You know, it was well, bizarre. This is the word of God. And then like, believe in kale. Like, <laughs> yeah, something yeah. Like that. That's exactly <laughs> case in point. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. Imagine like an Oscar Mayer commercial after the, you know, cannibal dungeon scene. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> Meow mix or something. <laughs> Meow mix. Oh. Yeah. All right. So continuing the plot here further down the road, the man and boy, this is, this is right after they uh, escape the, ca- the uh, cannibals with the escaping captives further down the road, the man and boy discover an underground shelter full of canned food and supplies. They feast and bathe when they hear noises above, including a dog, the man decides it's too dangerous to remain and they move on. They meet a near blind old man and the son persuades the father to share food with him. At the coast, the man leaves the boy to guard their possessions while he swims out to scavenge a beached ship. The boy falls asleep and their supplies are stolen. The man chases down the thief and takes everything from him, even his clothes. This distresses the boy so much the man turns back and leaves the clothes and a can of food for the thief. So I want to back up a little bit before we leave it behind, but there is a moment when they're at the house. It's, it's uh, you know the man's former house and the boy sees the other boy. And mm. this is such an important part in the book. Um, I think the book, honestly, in both, it, it it seemed like it was a real thing that happened and just the man didn't also see the boy and for whatever reason didn't believe him. But it, in in the in the film, it really felt stronger in the sense of like that was a real boy. Um, yeah. And then we get that sort of confirmed at the end. I don't know, like, is it necessarily the same boy we see at the very end? But like, I got the strong sense that it was. And then we also omit the whole like metaphorical conversation they have, which I literally teared up reading the book this last time I read it, where the whole thing as as uh, the man's on his deathbed is he's talking to the boy and the boy says, you know, is that is that is the boy going to be okay? Was he lost? You know, how do you know? And like he's kind of talking in metaphor about himself and we lose all of that. And we instead seems like it's kind of a real boy that the man just didn't believe in. And so the change there like shifts that whole metaphor 
Um, and it, I just wanted to note here, this is where it sort of gets seated, right? Where we first see the boy show up. And I guess we can return to it at the end because I don't want to get too into the end um, just yet. But, um, you know, any thoughts about how the, the, the meeting of this figment of the imagination, perhaps boy, was played out in the film? I, I also thought that it cheapened the film a little bit, and perhaps this aspect of the book would have made the film a little more confusing because it's almost like a, a secondary theme throughout the book. But the book is also very much a coming-of-age story for the boy. It's not just about your faith and hope and religion. It's also this boy's coming into his own in this adverse world, and that starts with him coming into conflict with his dad at that moment, seeing the boy. Um, and yeah, to to make that so definitive in the movie, to to make it seem like yeah, there really was a boy there. Uh, rather than it just being like the first seed of conflict, maybe the father's right, maybe the boy is right, they don't know, they're just going to keep marching on. That ambiguity that the book had, I thought, laid a really nice and subtle seed of doubt in who's the stronger one of the two, the man or the boy. Um, and that grew and grew as the plot went on, whereas the movie was just kind of like, I, I don't know. I don't even really know what I got out of that whole exchange with the boy from the movie. I mean, when we return to it later, it redefines it, right? Because we get the sense that like, oh, it was the boy. At least yeah. that's the sense I got from the movie. I you did know, too. Because uh, they say that they had been following them for a while. We know that the dog is what they hear. Speaking of the bunker, they hear a dog up there. We see the dog at the end and we think, oh, so that's what they heard. That's the group that's been following them all along. There is this other good group the that the that the man was unwilling to engage with because he was so afraid and that's that conflict he has with the boy over and over again where the boy wants to believe in the goodness of people and the man doesn't want to because it's too dangerous um and yeah that that just really like tips it into the scale of like well he should have listened to the boy <laughs> um yeah. because th there was this other good group they could have joined with if he had just been open to it you know we've already touched on this a little bit but he repeatedly leaves people worse off than he finds them in, in a mm. really brutal way. But he kind of tells the son the opposite. He's like, we're the good guys. And the ambiguity as far as that's concerned is like, it's kind of a perspective based thing. Um, and when we get closer to the end with, of this section here, we, we see this person that he's been, he's taking revenge on this person because of what this person has done yeah. um, to the extreme, you know, the you, thief, the thief. Yeah. Yeah. And the way that like, he's, he's said all of these things and, and uh, you know, you can think of a child as being innocent until corrupted by outside influences and you know nature versus nurture kind of thing that we talk mm -hmm. about often on the podcast um i think that this boy is inherently good and then is also having a father who's teaching him good things but then the father will also shoot someone who's holding the son captive and he will then you know chase down this person take his clothes leave him worse off and in essence, killed the person. There's no question. I think that, that person died and they leave the can, the can of food and the, the clothes as sort of a, you know, he just leaves it to to show the son that like he's sorry, basically more than it is like he he acted emotionally and and like lashed out on this person. Yeah. Quick point. That's Michael Kenneth Williams, by the way, playing the, the thief and mm -hmm. who rest in peace. He just passed away mm -hmm. a couple of years ago and he's been great in like everything I've ever seen him in. Um, he was in the wire. Um, so was, good in the wire. You know, yeah. you know, Lovecraft Country. 
Lovecraft Country, which we covered. Yeah. Um, oh, he's such a good character. Like that that character had a lot of depth too. Yeah. 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 So good, and he does a good job here with a very small role. Um, one notice, one thing I noted here, and it comes back at the end, and I, I, I honestly don't know what to think about it. So I want to see what your two takes out of it are. The missing thumbs. Yeah. The, yeah. the thief is missing his thumbs, and then the man at the end is missing his thumbs. The old man. Or, oh, no, the no. Ma- oh, yeah, the, the old man has the, his thumbs. The final guy, guy Pierce, Pierce man. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. what does that mean? I I read something about that online, so it's it's not my theory. Okay. Because I do have like um, but, kind of a theory that I've been working on, but well, yeah. the the weird thing is that it's all it's a contradiction to the book too. It's yeah. not what the That's book not a, says. No, yeah. The book says that the thief is missing all of his fingers on one hand, and to me, reading the book, that implied like, oh, this guy has stolen before mm-hmm. almost, and somebody cut off his fingers for theft, some old kind of Hammurabi code sort of thing. The movie, um they choose to have both their thumbs cut off, which makes me think, well, online they said that that meant that they are defectors from some kind of commune or something. Yeah, that's Um, a leap, but I kind of was thinking it could be something like, or they might have both escaped from a same, like a place that was doing that to people. I guess I'm surprised that they would leave them alive at all. Like why, you know, why cut off the thumbs? Maybe, uh, well, maybe to get out of, um, get out of handcuffs or something. I can see that. Uh, That's why I was thinking maybe they both escaped from the same place. I think that's a good take, like, like a self-inflicted escape thing. Yeah. Mm, yeah. And it's interesting that it ties those together though, because then that ties the thief directly to the man at the end. In yeah, a way yeah. that he's not in the book. So is he a reform? The man at the end might be reformed, or or I I kind of and this is jumping to the end, but I kind of got a weird vibe from the family in general. I don't I I they left me less trusting than the book family. <laughs> That's did. just you being the man, man. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll I'll talk about that like the family at the end in the book versus the movie. But I, I want to mention one more thing about the thief was that um kind of going back to them not necessarily respecting the coming of age through line as much. The boy calls out his father for killing the thief Um, directly says, you know, uh, the father says, well, you know, we don't we didn't necessarily kill him. And the boy says, but you did in the book. And they cut that from the movie. I thought he said something to the to the effect of that in the movie. No, he said something about like he's he's dead or he the conversation to get him to convince the man to return is very similar. Where he says, like, um, I am the one. He yells. He says, I am the one who has to care. They have that, which things. is great. Yeah. 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 And that's a, a pivotal part of that coming of age through line in the book, too. But, yeah, yeah. The, the fact that the son didn't call the father on his own shit in the movie. Yeah. Um, that that made the, the book. That gave another point to the book for me yeah, over sure, the movie. Yeah. I, I did um, feel like their relationship was a little different here too. Like I, I think they were just relying on the protection element of it to really convey how close they were, but it felt like they were closer to me in the book. Like I pointed out last last week that there are so many times where we see the man being very patient and explaining things to the boy. And the boy is terrified to go into the bunker at first. And he sits mm-hmm. or even open the bunker because he's been scarred by what happened with the cellar. And so the man and the boy sit together and just look at it for a while. And he waits and he says, you know, I'm going to I'm going to go down there. And here's why and he's, just, he's just so patient and, and, and trusting. And I thought that was so endearing 
Um, and this version, it was a lot more of the man kind of bossing the boy around. Um, I don't think it's not that he didn't love him. I think he clearly did, but it, it just wasn't that really sweet um, relationship that we got in the book. Yeah. I do want to jump back and talk about the old man a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. Robert Duvall. He... <laughs> I said last week that this was the, that this was the most literary character, like this old man who somehow is alive and, and seems almost magical in a way like, a, yeah. like, and, and I felt like kind of similar about him in the movie. I was curious mm. if, if, if you felt that way, James. <laughs> I, yeah, I felt it for sure. He, um, I love the way that he lies about things too. He's like, I'm 90. And he's like, that's what you tell people. And he's like, yeah, that's what I tell people. Yeah. Uh, I, one of the things that I read that I thought was fascinating too, was that the old man's line about having a son was not in the script and Robert oh. Duvall ad-libbed that. And I thought that that was like, I mean, what an ad-lib that is. Cause I felt like that was the, the, he's the other version of the man. He's the old man yeah. who goes on and no longer has the son, which, you know, this version of, the man obviously that was never going to happen for him because he's sickly but yeah seeing somebody come to grips with the, the fact that they failed to protect the, the child is really interesting M mike yeah. in a scene like that where someone ad-libbed something like how do you how do you play off of that because it felt like vigo asked him what happened to to your son and is that just like him ad-libbing ad and sort of improving in the moment yeah um well coming into a something like this especially a project where you have very little dialogue but clearly have a gigantic backstory as an actor you would have crafted that backstory at least alone if not with the the director and, and writer and all of that um so that ad lib could n not be planned but like the feeling is there. So the words are ready to come out. Like, like the memory is actually there at the top of the scene. So when he's asked, yeah, it just comes. Um, are you asking though, like how should, how would you respond to an ad lib like that in a scene or? I, yeah, I'm just curious about it. It's, it's, you know, it's an interesting process to me when we, cause we always hear these stories, right? And some of them are like legendary, about, oh, that wasn't in the scene. That was a complete ad lib by Robert Downey Jr. in the moment just said, I am Iron Man. You know, like all this stuff, like, you know, there's some of it I, I kind of roll my eyes at because I'm like, is, was it really that unplanned? But maybe, and like, it's the stuff of a legend when it comes to movies, right? We, we all celebrate these moments like they're somehow really special. And I guess they are in a way, but I, I was just curious, like, yeah, your actor's point of view on that stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it depends on the project. It, it depends on what kind of permission the, the director gives you. Um, I think it also depends on like who you are as an actor. Like, yeah, Robert Duvall can show up on set and he can throw a few words into a script and nobody's going to say anything about it. Um, might it end up on the cutting room floor later? Yeah sure uh, yeah. might it be gold and become a really compelling moment in the movie like it did absolutely um so yeah um i i've had some instances on set where a director will be like hey this take just do whatever you want kind of just <laughs> yeah. you know you know the you know how to get from from a to b however you get there you do it um and i've had other projects where it's like you must be word perfect you must be yeah. word perfect to the script um but i can imagine somebody like robert duvall uh, a scene that's that's that emotional yeah he he can play with it and like in the moment acting it out sure yeah you get caught up and and you just say shit that comes to mind yeah. um i can see so. there be like a moment where it's like uh Oh, that was great. I want you to say that from now on. We're going to do a few more takes, say that every time. Or it's like, maybe that was just one time he did that. And then when they were looking at it in the edit, they're like, I actually really liked that. We're going to use it. 
Um, yeah. You know, it's it probably I, I can see that being like uh, the director and like how do they want to push for something that's outside the bounds of what they expected. And then there's other directors that are probably so specific, right? Like, isn't Tarantino like he hates I just, improv? Like he wants exactly what he has written to be what's in the scene. That that sounds like Tarantino's <laughs> kind of attitude. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah. I just wa- listened to an interview that Jonah Hill was doing. I forget. It's kind of an older interview, but he was talking about working for the Coens and I forget if it was Joel or Ethan, but they walked up and like put their arm around him after many scenes. He couldn't get the exact words from the script and they put their arm around him and they were like, you're fucking killing me. Just just say the words exactly as they exist. <laughs> and then and then he compared that. He And he talked about being in, that was for Hail Caesar. And then he talked about being kind of similar thing with, I think he was had like a cameo role in Django. And then uh, he compared it with working with Martin Scorsese and Mar- Martin Scorsese on like Wolf of Wall Street was like, um, you know, just like really into the fact that that he was improvising throughout the scenes and stuff. So yeah, it kind of comes down to the project and the and the filmmaker. I think ultimately, like Mike said too, if you're if you're Robert Duvall, you probably have some more sway in the situation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I will say, I think we have a lot of those improv stories uh, of some gold coming out of an improvised moment because they are so genuine because those those lines pop into a good actor's head coming from a purely truthfully emotional place um which is why they they play on screen so the and also to add to your point this this had been after many takes and everyone i guess was pretty tired and and this is just like sort of they got to that point and then robert duvall uh improvised it and it just kind of was that movie magic moment hell yeah it's cool. I, I wanted to ask about the moment where they get to the beach because I felt like this was a very important moment where he swims out to the boat in the book, and then the man finds. Remind me if, I, if I'm wrong, uh, James, but I think he might he finds like a like a ship log and a compass, and maybe it was like a, one of those like looking glasses. He finds some stuff that yeah. was very like old ship captainy, and he and he even he may says have found like a sextant or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, you and know he, the he, old he, maps. And, uh, and it seemed like he was excited by the adventure of it. And, and he kind of had like a moment where he's like, I haven't felt this this way in a long time. Mm-hmm. And it was such an uplifting, important moment for the culmination of their journey to the sea for the man. And I was surprised to see it like all completely omitted. Like we see him swim out and then we cut immediately to him coming back and everything's gone. And to me, that made it seem like it was a mistake to even do it, to even try it. Um, I don't know if that was intentional or if that was like, maybe they just didn't have time for that scene or what, but like yeah. it ended up playing different for me than it did in the book. Uh, or, or am I missing something with that, that culmination, that, that arrival at the beach? I mean, I think you're right. I think the arrival at the beach hit pretty well in terms of it being, cause they, the scene before he's talking about the, the, the sea being blue and everything. And yeah, it hits, sorry, it's not blue. Sorry, it's yeah. not blue. Yeah. But I do, I think in the book there's, there's, fish everywhere like dead fish carcasses and stuff everywhere which i yeah. i think w- was really powerful for me because i'm like all right this means that you know no life exists in the ocean which is such a vast source of yeah. life and uh, we saw some bones i think in the in the movie a little bit yeah yeah um but then yeah it kind of th- you make a good point him going to the boat plays no part in the and there's no yeah. reason for him to do it and he gets the, the flare that's it Oh yeah, yeah, there you go. Okay, so yeah, that that was the reason. It it felt like it was like a story beat that was important to get the flare. Yeah, but the 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 sort of thematic resonance emotional and the beat. emotional beat was yeah. was just omitted. Yeah, it also uh, it kind of felt like just economy of time. Yeah, like you said, I think that they were just thinking we're already this is already a two hour movie. 
where where are we making cuts and maybe they shot more on the ship i'm not sure yeah at least in the book that whole sequence did strike me as one of those like oh we're getting hopeful and now it all comes crashing down it's almost one of those points towards like you shouldn't hope for things because the man is all you know kind of happy about his experiences on the ship and then he finds out he was being robbed that whole time yeah um so yeah yeah i was ashamed to see that go in the movie but you're right that it might have been unnecessary yeah it ultimately i don't think it matters that much i just kind of missed it um yeah. so it's, it's interesting when you talk about movies being faithful and how like this movie ultimately is faithful in most ways but it, it there are still choices being made right like what to include and what not to include because you just don't have time for yeah. everything I do think this is one of those cases and in talking about adaptations for such a long time, we we run into people who I have conversations with that say that a hyper faithful adaptation is the best adaptation. And this is I think this would go along the lines of something like that. Well, with with significant changes, I think thematic changes and some of the more subtle changes. Um, but I almost wish that they had kind of done more. I think it was out of respect for McCarthy, maybe out of for his work. But I think that that can kind of still put, I don't know, a governor on your on the engine of this film a little bit. It's kind of it's going to it's going to hit all the beats that you want it to hit. And unless you expertly are able to have a similar voice to McCarthy, which I feel like is almost impossible. Yeah, the the film may fall a little it might fall a little it might feel a little more hollow than the than the first the source. But so you're saying you wish they had actually done more changes. I do. I kind of wish that they had. And I don't know that like changes to the plot were necessary, but maybe changes to the it's way funny that because a few of the times they they did make some changes are moments that really stood out to me. Like we talked about the the cushion scene yeah. and that stuck with me. Mm -hmm. There's another moment I wanted to ask you about, Mike, as, as like watching because it's all really in Vigo's performance. And I do think we get a little bit of evidence as to what's going on here. But when they, they find the piano in that house mm -hmm. and he immediately breaks down and starts crying. Yeah. And we'd seen like a flashback where he was chopping up the the piano. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we saw Charlize there and actually playing the piano. Playing it at one mm -hmm. point. Too, yeah. So I'm making the connections there. He's thinking of his wife. What was your read of like that emotion? What exactly was happening there? It was beautiful. That, that was one of my favorite moments in the movie. It, it, and it's... Um, I think one of those reasons why Viggo Mortensen maybe didn't want voiceover because right. an actor can convey like I'm looking at this piano and thinking about, you know, a, a 20 year, 15 year history with a wife that is now passed away. Yeah. And you can kind of see all of that history in that moment. It was yeah. absolutely beautiful and just like, like brilliantly performed by Viggo Mortensen. A wife that he's had to like cut ties with in ways too for for survival reasons. Yeah. You know, that how how tragic that is. And also like the there's like a quick blink and you miss it moment, but they're having to cut up the piano for for firewood or something mm -hmm. like that. And the way yeah. that that you know it's really impactful when he thinks about like, I you know I can't help but draw the comparison to Station Eleven because I love so much how that played with art and and in a in an apocalypse and survival and what yes. it means to survive if there isn't something like a piano to express yourself and, and like how that's such an inherent part of humanity. That's where my mind went too, because I, 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 t I detected guilt too in him breaking mm. down. And, and I thought that maybe he was thinking about how much his wife loved the piano and then his decision to say, no, we got to chop this up for firewood and how in the moment, I'm sure that seemed like the most important thing to do. But maybe in this moment, he's regretting that he took away her expression. 
and maybe wondering if that contributed to her losing hope. I think that was one beautiful bit of um, physical acting on Viggo Mortensen's part in that split second shot where he's chopping up the piano. It doesn't look like he's just dutifully doing it to get yeah. some fire. But it looks like he is at the like the high point of a fight and he's like, fuck you. We need this yes. swing. It looks you know? like they've been arguing about it. And you can see it on Charlize Theron's face, too. Yeah. Yeah. So that like split second of emotion it gave that whole idea that it was a point of contention that they had fought about. And then, of course, that gets that emotion back out of him when he sees a piano again. Yeah. And then he plays it. Right. And he tries yeah. to, to say and he says, oh, you know, your mother could really play. Um, yeah. And, and yeah. At, to me, in that moment, it's him regretting like what? maybe that choice that he made. Yeah, absolutely. All right, moving on to the last bit of summary here. As they pass through the, a ruined town, the man is shot in the leg with an arrow. He kills his ambusher with a flare gun he found on the ship and finds the archer's female companion in the same room. The man thinks the archer and woman were following them, but she claims it was the other way around. He leaves her weeping over the body. Weakened, the man and boy abandon their cart and most of their possessions. The man's condition deteriorates and eventually he dies. The boy is approached by a man with his wife, two children, and dog. The wife explains they have been following the boy and his father for some time and were worried about him. The father convinces the boy he is one of the, quote, good guys and takes him under his protection. All right. So this, here we are I want to talk yeah. about the, the creepy family a little bit because, uh, Mikey, you mentioned you wanted to, to talk about the differences between the book and the movie versions. <laughs> yeah. So I I do think that the the book as a whole stays really ambiguous. Um and one of the best vehicles for that and it's something that Cormac Cormac McCarthy uses in, in a whole bunch of his books is this lack of punctuation, yeah. <laughs> um, lack of quotation marks, and he doesn't always indent a new line of speech. It'll just be at the tail end of a paragraph and we kind of figure out that like, oh, that's a thought or maybe it was said out loud or maybe it wasn't. Um, that's the kind of thing that you only get off of the page from Cormac McCarthy. Yeah. Um, but that creates a lot of ambiguity as to the the tone of lines, lines like we're so happy to see you at the end of the, the book and all of that. Um, uh, so, yeah, the uh, the book has that ambiguity about hope throughout Um I do think that the end, the the final image with the the fish in the creek of the book, yeah. um, implies some kind of living hope. Um, but I will say, specifically, the mother's performance at the very end of the movie, she almost looks like she's looking at a turkey dinner. Yes. Uh, <laughs> she. So I. I don't know if I'm reading that wrong, if that was the actress's intention. I mean, it's powerful and believable either way. Um, Did they say we were worried about you in the book? So when we were following you, because no, we well, were worried about you with your dad is such a weird thing to say. No, so I, I don't think in the book they were following them at all. Yeah. Or, or maybe it was just very briefly at the end. Um, but she does say we were waiting for you. And it is creepy in the book when she says it, because yeah. she's like like glassy eyed and seems kind of strange. And the boy even says like, he didn't like her very much, but he did like the, like the little girl and the boy that he was able to talk to. Yeah. 
And so maybe she was playing off of that. Like she wanted, she was trying to convey that maybe she's a little bit weird, but she just had such a limited amount of time that, yeah, it's like, she doesn't really get a chance to establish that as a character. Yeah. Yeah. We can jump back to the, uh, the flare ambush and the yeah. archer and everything too. Cause a couple things I want to talk end. about there. Um, mm-hmm. I, I read that. So there's, I, I had to look it up and I was asking you if you remembered, I pulled my book down off the shelf and was opening it up to go read that section again couldn't remember almost like i don't think the man that shoots the arrow gets killed by the flare gun so i went back and read that section in the book and it's kind of ambiguous because he gets into the room and the woman is with the man she says she's with a man and he and she's covered him in a blanket but the flare is in the center of the room burning and then the scene plays out he doesn't mention that man under the blanket again he asks where the bow is because the bow's missing. And he says, did they take it? And she said, uh, did they leave you here? And she said, I left myself here. And then he leaves. And so it's mm-hmm. very mysterious about like, what even happened with the bow? Was there another person present? Why is that man under a blanket? Is he dead? And if so, did he die from the flare? I wasn't clear on any of it rereading the book part. Um, it's interesting to me that the interpretation that the filmmaker has is killed by the flare. Because to me, that makes it like this is the moment where the man has truly fallen from grace. And it, it's not a it's not a um, accident that like he's soon to die after this. It's like he's been he's done OK mm-hmm. so far. He's made some mistakes. But in this moment, he killed an innocent man. She says, we, you know, you were following us, clearly implying that this that, you know, this guy was innocent. He was just defending himself. Or so he thought. And so to me, this felt like a sin that the man had committed and then that's why he ends up dying like that was kind of like my again i was on the uh, of the mind that like this was a very religious movie <laughs> um mm. in a way that the book was was a lot more ambiguous about it and so to me it, it felt like the 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 filmmaker was trying to set that up um did what do you think of that reading do you agree with it <laughs> I I agree with that. I, I mean, it is, as far as I can remember, the only time in the book where and in the movie where we really get to see the consequences of the man's actions. You know, she sits there in, in the room saying, you motherfucker. And she, mm-hmm. she gets to, you know, express her her sadness and hatred to his face. Um, and, you know, the whole, you know, were you following us? No, you were following us kind of thing makes it seem like we just as easily could have been reading a book about that man and his wife. And instead we're reading a book about this other man and his son. Um, So yeah, it really is kind of like the, uh, the mortal sin or the deadly sin that the um, uh, protagonist, the man commits. Yeah. So the score in this film uh, I mentioned earlier the filmmaker worked alongside uh, Depeche Mode. He's he was well known for working on music videos, and I was going to list some that some of the artists that he worked with: Elvis Costello, uh, Bush, Placebo, Him, Depeche Mode, AFI, Muse, Maroon Five. The reason I bring it up though is Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds is a, is an artist that he's worked with, and Nick Cave specifically um, is somebody who wrote one of his early works called The Proposition, and then he also scored this film. So I wanted to know, like, how did you how did you guys react to the score in this film? Because I think I'll let you I'll let you answer and then I'll tell you what I thought. I uh, I hate to admit this because I love good movie music. Um, I didn't really notice the score. 
okay. in this film, um, which I guess, you know, isn't a bad thing. Uh, like I, I remember watching There Will Be Blood and the score literally distracted me from the movie. Mm, wow. That's, really? Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a controversial one. People yeah. love that. Um, but yeah, yeah, this uh, didn't really um, pull me one way or the other. I, I didn't notice the score. Mm hmm. So the way I noticed it is the opening um, is like the opening sequence where where it was more prominent. I mm -hmm. liked it so much I had to look it up, uh, <laughs> added it to my writing playlist. Um, mm -hmm. So I did like it a lot. Uh, I thought it was very just sort of melancholic and 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 somber, but in a, a really beautiful way. Um, but that that particular piece. Um, it, it doesn't show up a lot, and I felt like if there, I don't even know if there was a lot of music throughout the rest of the movie, but the rest of the music at least did strike me. So I kind of agree with you there. Like, okay. I didn't find myself doing that for a lot of different moments, um, but just that one piece I did really like. I think it's called The Road. I think it's the name of the song, and I really liked it. Yeah, I'm glad that you, that you made the distinction between the stuff in the flashbacks and the stuff in the main, in the, in the rest of the film. I thought the score fit the themes and what was going on in the flashbacks better than it did the rest of the film and the rest mm. of the film it felt like it almost had a hopeful tilt to it mm. and i kept thinking that this is like subliminally giving people that that same thing that i've been talking about is that this film just set out to be more hopeful with an inevitable ending of them them escaping some fate at least one of them and uh i don't know i just i felt like it was a little heavy-handed i guess is what i would say <laughs> and there are specific scenes like there's the scene when he's pushing the the ring on the edge of the of the highway and he's like pushing it and i just felt like the score was a little too much for me interesting um, i don't know i don't have a particular memory of, of that music at all to be honest at that part yeah, i almost would have preferred it to just be like sounds of the scene and letting mm -hmm. it play out in the the drama of the moment instead of kind of being uh influenced that way I, I do feel like if I try and remember the very last scene with the, you know, the the mother looking at the boy and everything, I feel like it was in a major key. Like, yeah. like I, I, for, whatever, for whatever reason, that's that's like if I try to envision it, that's what it sounds like. And, and that might be one of those things pushing me towards all oh, this movie is a little a little too hopeful. Mm hmm. The, the final moments between the boy and the man, I think it, it's important to look at. Um, that was the the moment I was referencing much earlier on with the blanket, because they laid the blanket in such a way that when they're looking at each other from a certain angle, it almost looks like a rainbow going between the two of them. I thought that was mm -hmm. really clever use of color because it's just in the background. But like if you look at the scene, like it's all gray, you see the two faces and then you just see this little patch of color going right between them. So I thought that was that was a cool little clever way to do that. And a callback, right, to the to the yeah, scene with the, the waterfall, waterfall rainbow. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah totally. Um, so I love that, and and I thought it was a sweet moment. Um, I was frustrated that they changed the man's final words, and it goes back to the what we talked about with the the boy that he had seen because in the in the book, and I read this last time, but he just br briefly he says, "But what? But who will find him if he's lost? Who will find the little boy?" And the man says, "Goodness will find the little boy. It always has. It will again." And that's his final words in the book before he dies. In the movie, he says, you have my whole heart. You always did. Yeah, the, I feel like the movie chose closure of the relationship over closure of the theme. Yeah. You know, um, they, they chose to let it be about the, the father and the boy instead of about, you know, hope at large. Um, More cathartic for general audiences, maybe like. Yeah. To, to get it so that they can yeah. have that closing 
that closing moment with him versus like something that's that's getting at something larger maybe yeah i also wonder how many people would have gotten that the boy is talking kind of about himself in that moment um i feel like that's one of those things if i were a movie producer i legitimately wouldn't know what to decide like are people gonna get this or are people gonna think that like we're weirdly talking about this other boy from (laughs) earlier in the movie and that's the last scene between the father and the son um you know i i get it man and so so often i feel like in in great art though it's like you got to take a chance sometimes, right? I know, I know. And, and, but it's hard. Like, I fully admit it's hard to know what or to guess what the audience is going to think. Yeah, I get it. yeah. I love that. I think that's what makes Cormac McCarthy's writing great. Right. But yeah, um, Hollywood has a, a broader audience to contend with than, than most literature. It's interesting, too, because I, even a, a movie like this, I almost feel like studios know inherently that it's not going to make a ton of money and it might not make its money back. This was a period of time where I feel like they were making movies that for the love of making them, but then they still would take certain shortcuts to make sure that it was still marketable and it was still like, it would still appeal to the masses more than it would be difficult. I think we're in an era now where you could take a chance. And I guess it really depends on if you've done the legwork throughout the film to set up this metaphorical moment and if it's that kind of movie, people might know what's going on. But if you didn't, you know, I think the movie almost doesn't do enough metaphor to set that up. So maybe that was the decision making process was like, we, we this is kind of supposed to be more simplified version. And, yeah. and well, then accessible. if they knew they were going to make the change, which they do and imply <laughs> that the boy at the end is the same boy he saw. Yeah, that changes everything about that line. And you can't really use it. So yeah. I could see why another reason why they decided to get rid of it. But I mean, today, you know, maybe maybe I, this is an obvious thing to say, but like, I feel like A24 has made like weird interpretive movies popular again. Not just them. And yeah. you can have lines that people are talking about. And I'm saying that's reductive. Yeah. I'm sure there are a lot of other great, you know, directors and studios doing that. But it's like, yeah, I think th- there's a way you could do it that would work. Anyway, I wanted to talk about the Mandela effect <laughs> and the weird <laughs> ending I thought existed in this movie. And I have a theory about where it might have come from. I thought the man shot the boy at the end of this movie. My memory was that this mo- this version was much darker and that it ended with the man saying there's no hope and he kills the boy. And I don't know why I thought that happened. I, that is I not how the- this movie ends. But I think I know where it might have come from. Do you have? I was a guess, about to James? say that. Yeah, I don't want to say it though because I think it's a spoiler. It's a spoiler for, for that yeah. movie. But I know which movie, and I'll say it's a Stephen King property. Yes, and that's all I'll say. That's it. I think that movie got in my head somehow, and like I know that movie distinctly, and like I I know that that's that scene from that movie. I don't know why I thought that this movie ended in a similar fashion. Can I um, confirm with you guys after we stop recording? Because I, I think I know what it is too, but yeah. I'm curious if we're all on the same page. Or we could just cut it. <laughs> do you want to we'll say it. it? We'll bleep it, yeah. Is it? No. That's is not it, what I thought it was. Oh, yeah. no. Huh? James, James is right because it's a Stephen King adaptation. Yeah. Yeah. It's. Oh, yeah. Now, I, I'm like, in my memory of the movie is that it's different than that, but that it has a similar outcome. Um, that he that he ends up killing the boy, but then like regrets it or something or kills himself. I don't know why, but like that was my memory of this movie. It's not how it ends. So I don't know how interesting it is, but yeah, it's just a weird Mandela effect thing where I thought because I, I think in the last episode I referenced it. And I'm like, oh, I think the movie ends in a lot darker way. Do you remember that? 
in the episode i say that and i'm like that's because i thought it ended in that way and i thought it was hopeless at the end Mm. this movie is completely not hopeless at the end in fact it's more hopeful than the book is yeah yeah i was so i was so wrong and i don't know i don't know why it's just weird the shit that we think we remember because if someone had asked me about the road that was my memory of how the road ended in the in the in the movie and i was just dead wrong (laughs) very weird Okay, so as we wrap up here, I think we should move into our vote and talk about which we prefer, the book or the movie in this case. Um, We'll have Luke start. All right, everybody knows it, so I'm just going to confirm it. I'm a book first guy. Love this book. Read it multiple times now. My copy's all marked up, and it's just uh, I return to certain passages again and again. I love Cormac McCarthy's writing. Um, I know he's not for everybody. A lot of people, you know, give him flack and, and don't like his very particular style. But I like it. And I like that he's bold. I like that he takes chances. Um, and I would have, I would have, as we've talked about, I think I would have liked a little more ambiguity and a little more risk taking from this movie. Um, that being said, amazingly acted. Um, there's many moments that were visually striking that will stick with me. Um, and there's a lot to like here. So it ended up being closer than I thought it was going to be um, because I did like this movie a good bit. But yeah, for me, it's the book, hands down. Uh, the film, I thought, had a lot going for it. It's visually striking. I love the, the the desaturated look, even though some of the CG looks a little hokey at times just because of the nature of the time period, I think. Um, for the most part, it holds up in these like really striking like vistas of, I guess it's not really vistas, it's like a, <laughs> it's, there's like a lack of color and just destruction and a lot of the, the haze that they pump in and the way that the dust is just like ever present and the ashes all over them. And again, the performances are incredible for a child actor to to pull this off and some of the the material that was being asked of this person uh however scarring it was to this to this young boy uh, mm. i think he gave a great performance and and as we've said Charlize Theron was great for such minimal screen time and to throw in another fact little fact that i read uh here while i'm wrapping up she was told the director basically said during the birth scene he was going to go source actual birthing mothers the sound of that he was going to take that and sound mix it into her birthing scene and she was like what no fuck that and she's like i can do it i'm gonna do it and so everything we see on screen and hear on screen from her that's actually her performance and and she was really proud of the fact that she proved him wrong and i thought that was really cool um just what a great actor she is and, and vigo i haven't seen him ever not give 100 percent and really inhabit a character he just he just respects the material so much and wants to deliver it in, to the audience in, in such a great way. Um, but interestingly, I'm going to take the book in this scenario. Um, and it's that there's a couple of things that I'll just and hopefully this doesn't get too sad. But recently I lost my dog and in thinking of grief and I'm still devastated. It's just it's really hard and I'm just trying to cope with it. And in seeing a world where everyone loses I think there, there's moments in life where people lose someone and they're going through individual grief and they're dealing with the loss of something. And then you get these stories, these apocalyptic stories where everyone is mourning everything all at the same time and how people react to that and how like everything being ripped away, people are experiencing grief and, and expressing themselves in different ways, whether it's violence or trying to be moral and teach a child the right way to come up. There's so much in this story that's going to be as personal to me going forward and, and the way that Cormac in his book viewed death and talked about death and the way that it's coming for all of us um, and just the poetic nature of it and how some of it is can be so bleak and dark and oppressive and hurtful but at the same time have a hopeful message and kind of show 
what you can do to survive and what you can do to hopefully feel like you have some sense of fulfillment and you've left the world a better place. So I, I think that the book, I'm taking the book in the scenario, no question, but I think that this project I'm going to remember for a long time for those reasons. Well, uh, sounds like I don't have a, a tie to break, <laughs> but um, I guess I can just reinforce for your audience. Yeah, I, I'm with the book too. Okay. Um, I, I've read to this point three different Cormac McCarthy books. Um, he is such an awesome style of writing. And I do think that this movie is is not just a, a very good adaptation of this book, but maybe the best possible adaptation you could do of any Cormac McCarthy book because he <laughs> always lacks that that punctuation. There's always a degree of ambiguity. It's certainly in tone of the dialogue. Um, and he sort of doesn't really respect a three-act structure the way a movie has to. His mm -hmm. plot lines kind of meander and meander in a way that it feels appropriate for the stories. Um, so the movie couldn't possibly have captured all of that. Um, but I think this movie did uh, a very good job. We've already recapped the strengths of the movie, the performances, the art direction, absolutely stellar. Um, it's just that it can't possibly contain the awesome complexity that the book does. Um, so the book wins out. And it's it's missing Cormac McCarthy's voice too, right? Like so much of what made this story work was his specific voice and the way that he's so poetic with it. It's just... It's incredibly tough to to adapt, and like even even in one that was adapted well by the Coens, like No Country yeah. for Old Men, they had such a specific angle on it that kind of it felt Cormac McCarthy, but they changed it enough to where it was yeah. a Coen Brothers film. They made it their own. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I agree about like they. It's interesting that they chose to include a lot of Cormac's words in some of the voiceover moments, but. I was I was missing certain moments and I was thinking like I would have chosen different lines, right? Like you have these voiceover moments. I, I wanted different things. Um, so it's, it's weird. It's like that whole thing we've been talking about. Like, yeah, it's faithful, but yet there were decisions made, which lines to include, which lines to omit. And I, I just didn't quite agree with all the decisions were made. I, I wanted a, a slightly different choice. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's it's enough to hold it back for me, but um, it is still a good adaptation. I will grant it that. Yeah, uh, feels weird to say, but if you're looking for a good time, go see the movie. Uh, if you're looking for uh, a little more depth, read the book. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're looking for a good time. Go see the road. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a very a very particular kind of good time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, Mike, it's been awesome to have you on. Uh, appreciate you coming on and, and chatting the road with us. Uh, if people wanted to find you online, where can they find you? And also, what projects are you working on that you can kind of point people to uh, in the in the future? Yeah, uh, I'm on all social media platforms as actor Mike Whittier. So you can follow me there on uh, TikTok, Instagram. Um, I'm, I think I'm on threads now. Okay, yeah, yeah I'm on threads. <laughs> yeah, it's, I think I have a total of two threads posted. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you can follow me there. Um, like I mentioned earlier, I am working on my own adaptation right now of the uh, Poe revenge tale, Hop Frog. 
um, which is uh, going to be a lot of fun because like a lot of Poe stories, it's basically a third act, which means that I get to kind of write the first and second. Um, oh, cool. So yeah, to what I was saying earlier about not necessarily having to be that faithful to source material in an adaptation there's quite a bit that I'm adding into uh, my screenplay. So this so. is a Poe like short story. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and that that leaves a lot of room for a filmmaker to come in and and uh, interpret it themselves, right? Yeah. Exactly. Um, the short story itself is kind of like, bam! This thing happens. It's crazy and brutal, and then it's over. Yeah. Um. So the movie kind of explores how could this have happened, and what are the consequences? Um. At least that's what I hope. So <laughs> very cool. Sounds cool. awesome. That's rad. I'll be looking for that. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on, Mike. Uh, this has been a lot of fun and it's really interesting to have that perspective of somebody who's who's acted on the other side of the camera, because that's that's something yeah. I know nothing about. <laughs> oh, thanks again, both of you for having me. Um, I know Blood Meridian's been greenlit. I, I bet that's going to be uh, held up for a while. But let me know if you guys ever do that. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, if it comes out, we're going to do it because I've been dying to read that book and that would be an excuse to read it. <laughs> yeah. And if you want to be our Cormac, uh, our Cormac return <laughs> guest, we'll, we'll keep you in mind. <laughs> Dude, that book is a fever dream. That book is is insane. Um, nice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's uh, yeah, it'll be. I I don't know how that can possibly adapt it. Into it's been a in film. development hell for a long time. It's kind of come back and yeah. forth from what a I understand. A lot of people have and, tried it and yeah. failed yeah. to to ever like nail down the script. This one seems like it might be the one that goes though. Yeah, wasn't there a Kubrick attempt? Maybe to... yeah, that would be I amazing. That yeah. would have been something. Yeah, but um, <laughs> yeah, we'll see. We'll see if it ever comes to fruition. All right, Mike. Thanks a lot. Adios, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Mike. So if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to leave a rating, a review on whatever platform you listen to. Make sure to like the video on YouTube, subscribe, do all that good stuff. Yeah, and leave a comment. Honestly, I'd be curious to know your thoughts uh, on this movie. If you got this far, let us know. Like, do, do you agree with our takes? Do you disagree? Did you find something different in there that we missed? I'd love to hear about it in the comments. Make sure to connect with us also on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, you know, Twitter's rebranding right now, so yeah, we're also say, on it's threads. not Twitter anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not, I'm not calling it that. But <laughs> I don't think uh, anybody is. Yeah, but uh, we're also on TikTok, YouTube. Yeah. I think YouTube Shorts and stuff. So make sure to subscribe everywhere and make sure to follow because we post all kinds of good stuff out there. Yeah, and if you would like to support us monetarily, uh, that would be amazing. And the way to do that would go to would be to go to Patreon, patreon.com slash ink to film. And on there we have bonus episodes that we put out every month. Uh, we also have that's how you can vote for future projects. So if you wanted to have us watch something in particular, read something in particular and cover it, that's the best way to do that. And we'd love to have your support. And thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right, so I think it's time to announce our next project, um, which is gonna be a little unusual for us because it doesn't have a book attached to it, at least in our coverage. And that's gonna be Good Omens. We're coming back to the world of Good Omens. Um, we've already covered the book. If you haven't, if you haven't heard, uh, we covered it a few years ago. When it originally came out and we covered the show um we just loved it so much we want to we want to revisit for good omens too and we will be getting into that next so look forward to that yeah i love neil gaiman it was a very successful episode for us people seem to love yeah. our episode on good omens so episodes actually yeah um, and i love it that terry pratchett uh neil gaiman sort of dry humor mixed with 
you know, biblical stuff was pretty fun. Yeah, so I'm I remember you saying more. it was like a favorite at that year. It it's still really still like, one of yeah. my favorites we've read on the podcast. Definitely to my sensibilities, it, it's, it really spoke to me. All right, man. Uh, that's going to be it for the road. Uh, I would love to return to Cormac McCarthy one day. Hopefully it's for Blood Meridian, but I'd be open to uh, one of his other ones. I think All the Pretty Horses has an adaptation. So I would love to return to him because he's such a great author. But until next time, keep adapting. Thank you.